Hello, and welcome to Silent Designers, a podcast about the under-the-radar design activity which goes on in so many organisations, even though it's not seen as design, or even necessarily done by designers. Each month, we're talking to an expert guest to share their knowledge and the impact that design has had on what they do in their domain. I'm Steve Welsh from Innovate UK KTN, and I'd like to introduce my co-host, Catherine Wildman, founder of B2B copywriting agency, Hayden Gray. Hi, Steve. Thank you for the introduction. In today's episode of Silent Designers, we are going to be exploring the theme of net zero and sustainable technologies. And we're going to be talking to Professor Mark Price from Biohavior, which is an initiative of Queen's University Belfast and explores bio-inspired rules for innovative engineering design. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Catherine, and thank you, Steve. It's a real pleasure. I'm, I'm really happy to have the opportunity to chat over things of interest. Excellent. Well, how about we, we start easy and ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself and the area of innovation that you work in? I'm a professor of aeronautics at Queen's here. Um, I, I'm an engineer. By you know, My original training was in aeronautics, and I started my career off in the uh, aircraft industry as a stress engineer, working out how strong and stiff things you know should be. And as technology changed, and it has changed really rapidly in my career, uh, I began to get more involved into design systems and computer-aided design and using these advanced techniques. Uh, and I, I actually left the industry, came back and did a PhD on computer-aided engineering, and then uh, went back to industry again for a number of years before I, I turned to academia as a, a more formal and long-term career. Uh, and throughout that time, I've just been exploring interesting problems and trying to find out more in particular how we can make things better and make things differently. Uh, it's We've always found a really interesting challenge in engaging with companies uh, and understanding the challenges they face to remain competitive and to understand the, the new opportunities that technology changes bring. And as a consequence, we've just explored more and more of that. And, and you know, that's right. Ultimately, find ourselves today you know, exploring really radical new ways of thinking about how we enact the business of, of design and, and industry. It's interesting that you address the idea of problems and challenges, Mark. My next question was to ask you if you could tell us why design is important, how you use design in this area, and why that helps with innovation. It's a really good question, Catherine, for me, sits at the core of a major challenge we have, particularly in driving towards net zero and, and sustainability. Uh, and in those early days when we started to explore uh, manufacturing issues and how we, and I was interested in how aircraft were made at the time. My interests have expanded much more widely since then. But what, what we were doing was we were looking at uh, new ways of joining uh, metallic materials together, so welding as opposed to riveting or other ways of folding and joining these complex shapes. And what we started to look and find was that the the design methods that were 
being used were based on older technologies. And so as new technologies came on board, we were unable to distinguish between them from a, a decision point of view. So how do you how do you determine whether it's a good investment to make something in a new way or using a new material? Uh, and when you have safety critical systems and, and you know things like that, th- these are serious decisions to to make. So we then started to explore other tools that would help us you know, distinguish between different solution types. And really that leads you into a zone where you begin to understand that you know the design process and the decisions that that supports, are absolutely critical, not just for the product, but for the business and organization as as a whole. There's a classic diagram that came um, really in in the 80s that shows a picture of four or five um, engineers, I guess you want to call them, but people in a company. And it's the shadow that design casts over the rest of it and, and the decisions that you make in the early part of the design process, that drives more than 80% of your costs. It locks things in very early on because you have decided, I I don't know, a material or even a supplier or a machine or a factory. And as a consequence, you're then committed to that. That's very difficult to undo those. So the more you get involved in it, the more you see that to make decisions uh, about your product, uh, and therefore what it's going to be like and how it's going to perform over the years really comes down to design and what you do early on. And that design is not just a product, but in fact the whole organization and systems because that in, w- when you're setting up a design process and you're going through that, you bring teams together and you decide who's making it, where it's made, how it's made. So design really percolates right through the whole organization and that organization's wider supply chain. So you and I, I guess, share a, a formal background in more classical systems engineering. Um, and observe actually there's quite a lot of language we use, which is similar, uh, but um, not the same. But the concepts uh, match such a lot. And I'm thinking it, it's really interesting what perhaps it is design and maybe systems engineering we'd think of in terms of holistic thinking and how rele- relevant that seems to be challenge for, in the challenge of addressing environmental impact. So we were all trained in the use of systems engineering and for, for people that don't know you, it's, it's, it's how we're solving problems where you break it down gradually into tractable pieces So and then we reassemble this and we verify and validate and that's been a really powerful mechanism for us to manage a complex process. Where it gets very difficult and, and where our research has led us to is that the continual breakdown of the problem is constantly layering in constraints. And as you that, that of course, allows you to solve problems because you've constrained it to a point where you can solve it. But... When you bring in new challenges, like trying to switch to be, uh, you know, new processes for net zero, for example, you find that those constraints can block off avenues for innovation and they make it more difficult to do it. So in fact, we've had to start to, to rethink that process 
and to try and seek other ways of achieving the same, you know, confidence and trust and management in the process, but giving you ways out and giving you other avenues to explore to get new, um, less constrained solutions to the problems. Sometimes entirely new thinking. And uh, I observe a problem in, in my town. I was trying to investigate why it was that they're still putting in mercury vapor streetlights rather than LED or other really low energy lighting. But of course, the people who pay for installing the streetlights get their money from a different budget from the people who pay the bill for the electricity. So what's driving them is different. And that that's why I'm, I'm so excited to th- really drive systems engineering and the holistic thinking to pull in the different system owners to try and get them to talk it up. I'm also very interested in what what I've learned from design colleagues about what in systems engineering we'd have considered a requirements capture phase, where you're in those early phases about trying to understand your, your problem and your solution. I wonder what your experiences are there. Yeah, again, that's a... Um it's a critical part and in fact it relates for me to the you know the general principle of trying to set the design context from which you go then and, and solve your problem and requirements are interesting because depending on the domain of application you're in you have a different initial set of conditions and as you observe there with with the lights uh, there are examples of this across many industries and I really like it because we've got lots of things that are locked in by the processes and systems of the past and particularly when you involve regulatory bodies and the requirements for certification uh, you know and, and that really important aspect of ensuring that your product is safe and, and complies with all of that, that. Uh, so it's quite interesting because when you start to overlay those requirements, uh, if you were to step back and look at it, you you mightn't with a clean sheet of paper do the same thing. But requirements then both offer, offer you, if you like, the, a shelter in the context of where you're operating, but they also can really constrain you. And and that, that will remain for us, I think, uh, a particular challenge in really understanding how we can explore new uh, avenues for again back to to net zero and we, and we have to be obsessed about that and we have to really see where we can uh, open up these and uh, I was at a really interesting uh, seminar workshop yesterday run by IMAG on on simulation and the whole uh, uh, validation and testing and the the regulatory uh, environment that many industries uh, sit in today and some of that is based on what we knew from decades ago and so therefore they're flowing in as requirements before you start so you're given a new challenge and all of a sudden you find yourself restricted and, and that's a I think a particular challenge for us in how we manage requirements and how we flow that into the design context to allow you to explore new ways of of solving problems. I think that's a really interesting point, Mark. And one of the things that makes me think is when you began integrating design into your own practice, did you start by seeking advice from experts? Did you 
embark on some self-learning or were there specific frameworks that you turned to? How, how did that start from that traditional education? I wish you could look back and say, oh, I, I planned it very systematically, but uh, uh, it really was an evolution. Catherine, I, I got involved in a, in a range of projects and actually one of them was with a project initiated really by BAE Systems at the time and it was about network enabled capabilities and they were, were thinking very much about the systems engineering frameworks and how we use it. So coming in as a more, at that time, conventional or traditional engineering background and thought process, then we learned a little bit more about those systems and we were exploring, in my case, the involvement was around cost and how we cost in these dynamic environments. So we learned a bit there. And then as you learned a bit more about that and you were doing all the research, you were bringing over that cost and value. So we started to look at you know, lifetime costs and, and whole life costs. And then we started to think about, well, what's the real value of something? Because many of these requirements we talk about, some of them are quite quantifiable and quite clear, and others are less so. So you have to start to think about how do you monetize things and give a, that kind of value that's not always... I don't always think it's necessarily ethical to do it either, but but it's a it's a way that the world works. Um, and when you start to open up this it, the space of thinking about the whole life of something and thinking about how systems interact, you need to explore different ways. And it, it was that gradual picking up there and looking at okay, how do you innovate? So when you innovate, we you. Know, um, again, I'm an academic, so your your inclination is to, you know, as I say, you get your scalpel out and you peel everything back layer by layer, and you learn about other frameworks like TRIZ, which is a really clever piece of thinking that came from uh, also, uh, you know, a Russian, actually a patent uh, officer, really deep thinker. So you begin to learn about these systems and, and other frameworks, and then you start to put, again, from an academic, you want to put some underlying uh, foundational uh, thought process or framework or theories, if you want to call it that, uh, to the work that you do. And when you get those foundational principles, it starts to open up other avenues. So if you see there's a process there that leads you to explore opportunities, you peel it back, you make sure you are understanding foundational principles and then you explore more things. And it just iterates, Catherine, you know, you just expand out more and more until you start to ask questions of yourself. Why am I doing it this way? What What's my benefit? What's the benefit to those I'm working with? What's the benefit to the organizations you're trying to deliver for? When you ask those questions, you just have to keep learning and learning and learning and trying new things all the time. Sounds like it's never dull. No, <laughs> certainly not. I think it also suggests there's a role for being aware of not just aware of the regulations and the impact of regulations, but also the potential for regulations to drive behavior. And so <clears throat> how we can work together with organizations like Innovate UK, but others to try and affect how regulations, whether it's relaxing outdated regulations or 
considering how the need to meet certain targets could then drive innovation where businesses would otherwise only be aiming for a profit angle. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and I don't know, you know, if, if you're finding that as you talk to other people in, in different sectors and, and different backgrounds, I, I think that's really true. And it's not so easy to, to unpick because the, you know, many regulations are there for very good reason. People typically don't go in and make them up to try and stop people doing things. They're there for, for safety or, or whatever it is, or the, the, you know, the healthy organization, if it's a local thing. Um, and I think that's quite important for us to understand that, that context in, in what we're doing, uh, but to to unpick it, there's a really interesting problem. I, I think we uh, we were talking about this 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 week in the different domains that uh, lots of regulatory authorities really like physical testing at the end. So prove that it works, show me that it's safe. But it's hugely expensive, and there's a complex system built up to try and allow. Uh, that confidence of the that the regulator then can have to say, okay, I trust what you've done, I trust that this is correct, and and therefore you get your certification from it. But if you look at some of these, it's a very small number of tests that go on. So you know, we 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 as a community in in engineering and science, in particular and technology, we use simulation a lot. But you find this. Uh, I don't know if it's a, a human behavioural thing, but you know, many people will not trust the simulation, but but they will trust you know a single test. So you might replace you know lots of information with a very small amount of information, and, and I think that's the challenge that we have in in doing that and working with ourselves as a community. Uh, and actually, uh, with the regulators to ensure that we can maintain that, uh, you know, give that confidence and give that trust that the product will do what it's supposed to do, and it will be safe, and it will it will work well, and you know, the business's confidence that it will sell well, and 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 so on as well. So you get everyone happy. Really drives behaviour. It, it absolutely does, and it makes it then very difficult uh, to. To reinvent or to change things. The wonders of human nature. Um, we're coming to the end of our time today, Mark. Thank you so much for being here. I know that Steve has one more question we'd like to ask you. Well, so, so listening to all that, it makes me feel like this is a cruelly hard question then. But as an innovator, what one piece of advice would you give to somebody wanting to incorporate design thinking? My one piece of advice, Steve, would be to unpick everything and be prepared to question all of your processes but just unpick it piece at a time uh, and when you do that lots opened up so we we've done that in our research and that that unpicking has led us to instead of going from top down we go bottom up and we are now exploring how to create new products and new processes and systems, you know, using these bio-inspired systems, which we're, we're really, if you can imagine an analogy of growing things like a plant, 
And that's the way we're creating our products and systems now. But it came from exploring everything and just unpicking each piece by piece. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your insights and advice with us. It's been fascinating to hear from you. And thanks very much to both of you. It's, lo- it's lovely to talk about it. I probably could have spent all day, but uh, it, it's really nice to be involved in the community and to be able to chat with people who are exploring new things. So thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you again. Thanks for me too. This podcast has been produced by the Design in Innovation Network, which is supported by Innovate UK. If you want to find out more about design in innovation and gain access to other interesting people, just sign up to the network and we'll see you next time on Silent Designers.